Uh, hello, everyone. Uh, my name is Larry Norris. Uh, I am uh, one of the co-founders of Decriminalized Nature, uh, which started in Oakland in uh, December of 2018 officially, and then we started doing this work and passed uh, in June of 2019. Uh, I'm also an executive director and co-founder of Entheogenic Research Integration Education, which is a um, educational organization out here that's been hosting educational events and peer integration circles since about 2011. So we've been doing this about nine years now. Uh, I'm also just graduated with my doctorate uh, in ayahuasca and integration. Uh, and I look at integration as a meaning making process. Uh, so that is uh, um, exciting to be done with that because now I can focus a lot more of my attention on decriminalized nature, which is great because uh, a lot of the people that are doing these in different cities are also trying to figure out how to do integration, how to do education. So I'm able to sort of uh, do both worlds and really help out um, some local efforts in that regard. So I'm really happy to be here and uh, yeah, thanks for inviting us. Well, thank you. I think uh, Carlos, hi, uh, Carlos Plazola. I'm um, chair of Decrim Nature, uh, national group and uh, co-founder with Larry and a group of others here in Oakland. Relatively new to uh, plant medicine work, uh, been on a lifelong journey to sort of unravel what uh, all of this reality is and um, was uh, pretty blown away by pretty strong mushroom journey a couple years ago and since then had uh, some other plant medicine uh, work that I did that uh, really kind of dialed it in that this is something really special. Um, and um, yeah, just uh, seeking to do the work to ensure that these remain accessible or become accessible to uh, the most vulnerable members of society and to those who traditionally don't have access to clinical or medical models, uh, which would include about 50% of the US population and maybe a global population, uh, including um, traditionally marginalized and exploited communities in the US, immigrants, people of color, um, uh, rural, rural poor communities, uh, et cetera. So, and also trying to make sure that um, ceremony um, becomes and remains, community-based ceremony becomes and remains legal <clears throat> and supported, protected by government from here forward. Same reasons to make it accessible to the most vulnerable. Hmm. Well, thanks guys. Um, I think you, your work so far has been revolutionary and I think it's just the beginning. And um, the number you put on 50% of people is that like an, is that an actual like statistic do you think or do you think it's like something higher than that potentially well i, I use that number sort of um with with um um i suppose a little inexact but that would include uh people in the u.s who are really contributors to the um what, what you know i consider capitalist system uh, to have beneficiaries and benefactors benefactors those who perhaps not willingly contribute to the, to the process of profit creation and those who are the beneficiaries of the, pro, of the process. An Uber driver, for example, is a benefactor. He's subsidizing his time and his life to enable others to gain profit, uh, or she is. And so, um, and oftentimes the benefactors of capitalism don't have access to clinical or medical. And I would put, um, at least in the US, probably uh, at least 50% of the population in that category globally perhaps it goes up much higher but there's still a lot of people globally who have access to plant-based healing work through their own uh, ancient traditions so um, I, I suppose it's an inexact um, science but um, 
you know, it might, it's probably getting wider now that the wealth gap is increasing. Mm. I, mean, I would project that percentage to be higher myself. I don't have exact statistics, but, you know, I mean, because even just the ethos, you know, outside of the cost and outside of everything else, there's an ethos that's really sort of embedded in therapy. And it's sometimes that ethos has been very oppressive for lots of people. So, you know, a lot of communities are just like, that's not really my thing. Um, so that's another thing, just like, how do we, you know, people are finding ways to connect in community with local based sort of organizations with, you know, churches with, uh, you know, nonprofits with, uh, you know, community based organizations. So, um, so yeah, so I think that's a number that's probably a good estimate because I would say it's on the low side. So. Yeah, which is very daunting when you put it that way, because even if it was say, I mean, I guess you could say even one person is enough to is, is important enough to help. But when you say 50%, even if it's like 20% or 30% of the world's population, that they still need, those are people that are in dire need of help of these, uh, these plant medicines. And it's, it's I, I have a saying that I, I say often is that, you know, these substances being kept from us are quite literally a crime against humanity or, or that's what they'll be seen as in the future because if, if that amount of people need them, it is, it's like, it, there's, there's people literally suffering because they're being kept from having these substances. And I thank you guys for, you know, putting in so much effort to try and get this out to the world. But my question is, um, I'm going to add something to that real quick. The, the suffering is, is not only just mental health stuff, but the suffering is uh, being peeled back from our ancestry. Mm. to not realize that all of our ancestors have, have these plant traditions. And so that's a whole other aspect too, about being able to make sure that people have access so they can tap into their own personal lineage, their own personal history, their own personal plant healing, that type of thing. Mm -hmm. And that's been happening for thousands of years now. So, um, so yeah, it's, there's a lot of layers to this for sure. Yeah. We have an unknown or at least a loss tradition with these or in relationship with these medicines. I'm actually, um, on Tuesday, I'm interviewing a guy who's, he, he calls himself the psychedelic historian. And uh, I guess, you know, he knows so much. He does, he does lectures on, you know, our relationship, our historical relationship to these plant medicines. So it should be a very interesting and enlightening What's his conversation. What's name, out of curiosity? <laughs> to be honest with you, I don't know. I don't know his name. I just know him by the psychedelic historian. I, uh, I don't know it off the top of my head, but um, if you guys are interested, I could send you his stuff afterwards. But yeah, but, but some of his stuff that I read is really, really interesting. And, um, and I just was turned on to uh, Brian Murarescu's uh, Immortality Key. I don't know if you all have had a chance to read that, but I'm going to start reading it. It's basically showing how the Eucharist was most likely a psychedelic. Uh, and I say showing, he's literally doing um, archaeochemistry to find the, um, the, the compounds in, in the actual cups that mm -hmm. are in various museums to show that there was ergot and other um, uh, psilocybin mushrooms associated with Greek and uh, Christian uh, worship. Yeah, back in, back in the day when they called it wine, it wasn't just the grape wine that we hear of today. It was like more like gin almost. It was a bunch of botanicals put in together to create this sort of other effect. And so, yeah, so even the idea of wine has changed so much over the years where back then it was really sort of partaking in a, a variety of different plants so it's very possible for sure yeah i i believe that 100 percent. i think it was just like um there was a, there was that guy that was on joe rogan the other day and he went through the uh the um the elusian mystery and all the the artwork that was on all rescue yep brian rescue and it was, that was one of the most interesting podcasts i think i've ever listened to and i think there's so much truth to it that there's just something we lost 
something just got lost in translation and the remnants of it is our as our alcohol culture that we still have but there was more to it like there was more in the alcohol and um i don't know it's the truth that we have yet to unveil and leading up to that it was happening in all the villages and uh and then it you know as, as christianity became a tool to consolidate power and control minds then um, the, the use of psychedelics became and plant medicines became more and more centralized and controlled. And then we lost our access. So I think that's really decrim nature's, um, goal and intention here is to liberate those. It was interesting to listen to that podcast you just mentioned because Joe Rogan and Graham Hancock and Brian Morescu were all advocating, which is really fascinating. When you think about the colonized mind, they were all advocating for, um, increasing access in the Western world to these plant medicines, but in a controlled environment of medical and clinical, which is kind of the state government and state run, right? Which is because it's all state certified, state sanctioned. So even they, from their sort of open-mindedness are still advocating for a government controlled access. Mm. Then again, cuts out 50% plus people in, in the communities who actually most need these because they're the most trapped in default mode network based on intergenerational trauma. So that's, uh, we, we still have a big challenge even amongst the most progressive members of our society to break free of that indoctrination that things have to happen in a controlled environment. Mm. So what do you add? Um, what do you advocate for the use? Is it just like a free everything decriminalized? You can be able to grow it if you want to grow it and you should be able to use it if you want to use it in your own setting as long as you're not hurting anybody. Um, this, is it more just like a, you know, just a freedom like i mean literally this isn't it is it is nature what yes, you it's nature man i got tomatoes growing in my front yard i want to be able to grow venisteriopsis cappy and, and chacruna and mix it and make dmt and have it if that's what i want or grow mushrooms why not it's yeah. Plant, right? yeah yeah that's what I, I love the name of your organization it's just it's straight it, it's a it's a it's a um it's a message in itself it's just you criminalize nature like it is it, it is it's it, these are literal uh, chemical messengers from the earth and we're being kept from them. And it, it is, I've said it before, it is a crime. Like it, there's just something that is being kept from us. I mean, do you envision a world in the future where people are able to do that? Like, is that your end goal where we can just, you know, if in our free will, if we want to take these and grow these ourselves, we have the ability to do so? Yeah, I envision a world where technology, uh, high technology, advanced technology lives side by side, community based ceremony of uh, deep, deep consciousness work and ancestral conversations about ancestors and, and, um, and, and, and plant based medicines uh, living side by side, high tech companies, because for me, the plant medicines, the, um, the voice that comes from nature through the plant medicines through a biosphere is wisdom. Mm -hmm. Technology, science, and the whole reductionist model is just information. But information without wisdom uh, is dangerous. And, mm. uh, so for me, it seems that uh, these plant medicines are needed more than ever to ground us back as human beings on this planet. But um, yeah, I would say to add to that too is like you know we often talk about <clears throat> a lot of times people will use kind of that same format of what you said to sort of critique us. Well, is this just going to be a free for all, right? 
And people forget that it's only been illegal for 50 years of the thousands of years that they've been on the earth. 11,000 mm. years of practice of mushrooms was first, you know, cave paintings in Algeria. They found like 11,000 years ago, 9,000 BC, I think, with, you know, the, the bee shaman that has or, or the medicine person that has mushrooms all over their body. You know, so this has been happening for a really long time. So it's the beautiful thing, and I think you touched on a little bit, is we're talking about nature and, you know, why is nature illegal? Why, why can't I sit in California and watch a mushroom grow? or a peyote button grow in my own house. Like those things are actually illegal to even watch a plant grow. And not even if I adjust or do anything else with this. So, so it's like, you know, you said earlier, it's about, you know, we lost this thing. And I think when we, when we say we lost it, it suggests a passive engagement. This was actively hidden. This was actively stripped away. This wasn't something that we lost. It was something that was taken from us. So to be able to not only be able to grow our own, but I mean, we're amazing we're in a place where the planet is in is in dire need of help and we're working with things that have beautiful flowers it's not like we have to go to a chemist in a lab to get lsd or mdma or whatever it's like grow these plants they're beautiful they have flowers that it'd be great for people to start thinking about the earth again so that nature thing is really huge we're humans we're nature nature is nature we need to reconnect with the earth all these components are really kind of embedded in this conversation so we're having a lot larger conversation as well as decriminalizing nature because it starts to like ask, you know, what is, for example, what is the entourage or the ensemble effect in mushrooms? And why is psilocybin not that, you know, which is coming from Big Pharma? Uh, why is it that the Controlled Substances Act is set up so that Big Pharma can extract the profitable components out, but some of those plants may never make it off because you have medical value. That's, that's how you sort of get off, right? The only way to make medical value is to, to synthesize one of the components and then show it in an FDA trial. You got all these sort of components where, you know, but plants are just too complex for that. There's a variation, too much variation. So that was, they would never get off, you know? So, so how, what, what is our relationship to nature in general right now in the sort of mechanistic world when we have tech and we have all these other things that are really trying to, you know, make hum humans or, or man or you know, humanity be sort of the, the, um, the designer of culture instead of realizing, you know, like I've heard this actually from somebody recently was like, uh, you know, I was like, oh, you know, I think it's, <laughs> this is my personal ideas, not necessarily of the end. I think it's a little arrogant sometimes of doctors to say we can make a better psychedelic than what's coming in the earth because we've, as Carlos often says, we've co-evolved with these plants. Our ancestors have co-evolved with these plants. So there's like thousands of years of trial and error that's happened and then, you know, uh, you know, big pharma who are now making $1.5 billion on the stock market, right? And they're just extracting one of those and trying to make the best one, you know? So, uh, so what do we lose in that process? You know, what do we lose in this idea that we need to reduce it down to something, you know? So, mm. uh, so this nature conversation is really huge. And I think uh, hopefully people will start seeing, you know, these, and I, I think they are seeing sort of the bigger sort of philosophical dialogue that we're having underneath this as well. Mm. Yeah, and I'll, <clears throat> I'll add, you know, my own experience with mushrooms and ayahuasca that allow me to make the following statements. Um, it, the, the awakening part of it, which probably in and of itself is part of the reason why they've become illegal and controlled, even though they've only been illegal for a short time, they've been controlled for a very long time. Uh, and the whole process of indoctrination and narrowing the, um, the visibility of our own consciousness has probably been in the works for over 2000 years, perhaps longer as, as, um, as we become a more um, uh, centralized <clears throat> society. Um, the need for uh, making people more productive, uh, just production mechanisms in, in the model um, becomes more and more important to those at the top of the pyramid, if you will. Um, but it's really a fascinating question to ask, why does nature create these plant medicines that when taken by humans enable an expansion of consciousness? 
it's really an interesting question because on the one hand, if you look at it from the perspective of the biosphere, this big ecosystem that we're part of this ecosystem where these compounds exist that expand our awareness, make us feel more connected to nature, more connected to the planet, more connected to the universe and to each other. It's a very sustainable model in terms of enabling humans to, to, to not, you know, pillage the planet. Whereas the model we've created that's uh, much more top down centralized um, and basically we're production mechanisms in a society is not sustainable and we're figuring that out. Uh, so it's a really interesting question about why, why are they there and mm. um, how did it come to pass? Yeah, I think um, they're here as I think Dennis McKenna said it, they're here as chemical messengers of the guy in mind. And it's kind of like Earth trying to wake us up and tell us like you're doing something wrong. You're, you gotta wait and it, you know, it, it's, it, it's coming up, it's coming about and it's popularity is coming about. It, it's such a, it seems like a perfect time in the world where we really need it. It's like a wake up call. And, yeah. um, you know, podcasts like this, organizations like you guys, it's, you know, it's just furthering the process of the guy in mind. And all the more reason why we have to recognize that the clinical and medical models are not the only models. Because then we leave out um, and we talk about creating a, a chasm between the haves and the has nots, have nots. What we're really talking about is if we, if we leave it to um, clinical and medical in terms of how people access these, uh, then we're talking about a small group of members of society who can then experience the benefits, leaving out a huge amount of people. And then we're talking about a chasm that's about conscious awareness, which talk about injustice, yeah. entering this plane of existence, and then not being able to experience the, the, the expansive freedom because you don't have the income or the cultural relativity to clinical or medical um, is, is a travesty and a crime. And so really what we're doing is also pushing back against all those people, including Joe Rogan, who say uh, this should happen in a medical or clinical setting. It, yes, it can happen in those. And for those who want to experience it, including some of my own members of my own family who prefer clinical or medical, right on, do that. But a lot of other people, including many immigrant cultures, um, would prefer to do it in community-based ceremony, including with their own families. And I think you're, what you're speaking to, too, it also sort of it's, it, it highlights the the pigeonhole that everyone's kind of putting themselves into because in the medical or clinical, guess what they don't talk about? Hey, what's our connection to the earth? <laughs> what's our mm -hmm. connection to sacred? What's our connection to all this other stuff? It's like, okay, if you have treatment resistant depression and you fit these exclusion exclusion criteria, in five years, the FDA may approve something for you. Yeah. Okay. Well, <laughs> what about all the other many, many, many ways to do this? You know? So it's the same dynamic that happened with cannabis, right? It went to medicalization. And then as soon as that appeal to authority happened, it was really easy to say anything that's not this is recreational, i.e., you know, nonsense or playing with your belly button or, you know, in your own sandbox or all these other, you know, it's a really easy way to set up that dynamic. And then that for, sort of forces people to think, oh, the medical is the right way. And this other stuff is just, you know, foolish. And I think we're trying to really also kind of shake that up a little bit because that there is more than just this duality, but medicine obviously um, benefits from creating that duality because it shows that they have more sort of um, you know, authority or more uh, understanding, more professionalism around it. But as Carlos has been saying, they, you know, people have been doing this for thousands of years and, um, and, you know, my medical just came around the last 40 years to study this. And they often say, we, we need more research, right? Which is funny mm -hmm. to hear when it's been researched for, you know, thousands of years. So maybe the medical needs some more, but there's a lot of other ways to go about it. So, so if we kind of just get stuck in that sort of conversation, we're not really opening up to the larger context. And I think the larger context is where 
I'll, I'll use a, an unverified un, uh, stat. Ninety percent of the people are interested. In <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then, uh, Dave, you know, Dave, physicist David Bone pointed out in a in a debate he was having with other physicists on his side was the Dalai Lama and physicist David Bohm, and it was a facilitated med, um, uh, mediated conversation debate about science. And one of the uh, physicists said, "Well, but." Um, instrument instrument use has only been around for 200 years, so really that's how long we've been doing science. And David Bohm pointed out that instruments, uh, only instrumental use, uh, that is in this case medicine and measurements, are relatively new to science. And and uh, so so really what we're talking about when we talk about medical clinical research is the use of instruments in science, whereas all the other um, scientific work where you're doing, uh, maybe you can do a uh, observational study of 50,000 people that have gone through ceremony and then ask, you know, how, how, uh, how they came out on the other end over time uh, is also a, a pretty, pretty strong method for establishing and determining um, the healing effects of these plants. Mm. Uh, so, so I think there's the idea that we've not done enough science is a myth issues we've not done enough reductionist based science using instruments to uh, separate compounds from each other and test specific individual compounds that's really what they're talking about which is fine do do that science but let's not let's not um, throw away all the science that's been done for thousands of years by our ancestors and I think that's where we really want to advocate for a broader view of these mm -hmm. And I would say even too, uh, with that, my, my research was on sort of the, the meaning making process, right? And so even that is interesting because it's like, you know, a lot of these scientists, a lot of these clinicians, a lot of these neuroscientists believe this is where consciousness is, right? Inside this little round watermelon in your, on top of our neck, right? But all these experiences suggest, and spiritual teachers and mentors and ancient indigenous practices, that consciousness is here everywhere else and we're swimming in it so it's also even limited as to where the view of what's happening is happening because yeah sure this area of my brain might light up but what does that really tell me about my experience or these other things so so even that process like if we're allowing that to be the meaning makers of our experiences we're going to get sort of stuck inside of our head <laughs> instead of realizing that we're connected to everything you know yeah 100 percent um it's just the the problem is is that we live in such a rigid capitalistic society and which is run by people that have never experienced these states of mind. And you know, most of those people are the ones that make the rules, but it, it's, it's holding us back. And I, I actually thought you guys were gonna be in favor of uh, clinical support and therapeutic support. And it's funny that you actually have the idea of like, no, that's, that's it's such a slow process. And I agree with you, like it's, it is, it's just such a slow, process that only a small very small amount of people will have access to but when i think we're not we're not opposed to it but we have to be really really intentional about timing because mm -hmm. when we start passing legislation that's um that enables clinical and medical what we are doing is creating a specific special interest group that now will advocate and lobby for reduction of abundance and by abundance i mean that everybody can grow gather gift their own Right, mm -hmm. because now they've they, you you've licensed people. They are creating an economic model. Uh, there's insurance companies that will now become engaged in that. So all of the capitalist interests become focused on how do we advance clinical and medical? We can increase our profits, 
and not lose market share to all these crazy people who are doing um, grow gather gift models. And really at the end of the day, our, even our allies within clinical and medical, and this is where I think there's a lot of people being pretty irresponsible in the clinical medical. And in fact, Joe Rogan yesterday and even Graham Hancock, as much as I love him for not advocating this, um, is it's a function of risk assessment. And, and here's the part where I think it gets kind of wacky for people. So a lot of people are saying, well, but if we decriminalize, we're gonna risk our clinical medical trials. We're gonna, we're gonna risk our FDA trials because you're gonna have all of these occurrences happening in community where people are gonna be jumping out of windows doing mushrooms and, and then they're gonna put at risk uh, our, our efforts. And I think this is a big kind of unspoken thing amongst even our allies in clinical medical and research communities is the fear that we as community will do something wrong. Yet, if you ask them, that's where they had their experiences was in community. It wasn't in a clinical or medical because those don't exist right now, right? Yeah. Most of them don't. And, and if you look at Oakland and Denver, there's been no reported incidents, emergencies in newspapers or otherwise of these bad experiences that everybody's so afraid of. And if we look at cannabis, we also see that the, the end of the world didn't come as predicted by, you know, decriminalization of cannabis and legalization of cannabis. So it's this kind of irrational fear that's just a leftover relic of our top-down control model um, and but even our allies now are becoming more aligned with the the, the people at the top of the pyramid if you will uh, because we're so embedded in fear mm -hmm. and the last piece on risk is if you ask somebody in an immigrant community or a inner city community who has deep trauma and they they are basically living their life stuck in the default mode network what their assessment of risk of taking a five gram mushroom journey versus some, you know, a, a soccer mom who lives a privileged life or a soccer dad who lives a privileged life, um, their assessment of risk of taking a five gram journey is very different because uh, one person is saying, I need to save my own life. And the other person is saying, I want to have a cool experience. Mm. Very different things. And so we really have to look at risk uh, from the perspective of, of those using it and in real terms. Yeah, I would maybe just add to that too, this, you know, from personal perspective, having done this research for a while, I'm actually probably more concerned about the FDA trials because you have the microscope of the government watching every step they make. One scientist makes a mistake, you know, maps there's a sexual abuse issue that happened in, in Canada that got, got some big hoopla, you know, like there's all these things that can happen that aren't necessarily about the mushroom. It's about the system and the people and the ones who are engaging in the science and any mistakes can happen. And now if we have a, micro, or a, a microscope on it, who knows if somebody makes a mistake, how that will sort of trickle down to the community. Whereas, you know, the community has been doing this for, for years and, you know, 30 million plus people in the U.S. have tried at least once and none of those have gone that way. And sure, there's experiences, there's people that maybe could have a challenging experience, all these things. But uh, that's, I think, less of a concern to me, at least than you know, because as soon as the FDA says no, if that was to happen, then, you know, where, where is everyone else going? So let's get as much of this out there, show, show personal testimonies. And I think Carlos spoke to another thing too. I had a, a good friend of mine who went through one of the first uh, Ibogaine trials uh, with Dr. Mash down in St. Kitts. And uh, he had been addicted to heroin for about probably 20 years. And he went in and said, I had this dream. I'm, I'm not gonna make it through this next month if I don't do something like right now, like I'm gonna die this month. Can you do something for me? They're like, you're super toxic. I don't think it'll work. You don't, you, you don't have enough strength. And he's like, he's like, they're like, it's super risky. He's like, man, I'm going to die in a month. <laughs> what do you, what do you care? Like, let me just try this thing. Like, you know, and, and we have this right to try now, which is kind of 
possibly, you know, good for like end of life stuff. But, but yeah, like with the self agency for the person to say, make the decision, say, Hey, you know what? It might be risky, but I'm dying either way. So let's make yeah. it happen. And now he's 20, 22, 23 years uh, without any heroin. So um, it was a great decision on his part to actually take that risk. So I think Carlos is speaking to that right there is like, you know, the risk assessment is different when the, the situation, the conditions are different as well. Um, so yeah, so that would be, you know, and, and then I think, you know, we've heard from people who have told us that certain FDA folks have actually been more, um, less upset about what we're doing than not, because we're creating a situation where there's public perception change now. So now it's easier to get that fast track. You know, it's easier to talk to that, you know, colleague who needs to do this thing. And, and again, like Carlos says, you know, if that happens, that's great, but you know, Right now, it's just for treatment-resistant depression. You know, mm -hmm. there's a lot more things that are happening in the world that these could be helpful for. So, um, yeah. so but let's let's make sure that the community has access. Mm -hmm. So, how do you see um, the world changing? Like, how how do you how do you convince the public that these are ultimately substances that can help? Because the majority of people think magic mushrooms are still on the scale of crack cocaine or heroin. Um, I mean, people are waking up to the truth, but does it, does it just come down to us as individuals giving our stories, like anecdotal people, uh, anecdotal evidence from people that are just tell their stories or just, uh, is, is it just through education, do you think? Every day we step into the world, we swim in a uh, sea of propaganda and um, collective consciousness through our social media communications, through TV, through conversations with other people. And um, when we and, and so when we pass decrim nature in Oakland, the conversation here, the collective consciousness conversation that we're having in our town, expanded to include the healing effects of, of entheogens. And what that did is it even penetrated into our communities that have been the on the losing end of the war on drugs, which is the hardest community to reach because there's such a high level of um, trauma based on drugs. And in my own community. We associated mushrooms and uh, in the Chicano community of, of East San Jose and Jalisco, Mexico and, and uh, other places. But um, we, uh, we associated um, psychedelics uh, or uh, mushrooms or LSD or ayahuasca, which I never heard of until recently, uh, with things like PCP and heroin. And it was all mixed together. And, um, and so just even having the conversation that these are healing plants, that mushrooms can heal, that ayahuasca is a healing thing, that mescaline containing cacti are healing. Now what you're hearing is in black, brown immigrant communities in Oakland, people are having these conversations. And even elder folks are having these conversations. In fact, one elder uh, African-American gentleman came up to me after a presentation and he said, you know, I, I've been thinking about it for many years and I think, and he's about 75 years old. He says, I think I'm ready to have a mushroom experience before I go based on what he'd heard. So um, the, the collective consciousness begins to change in the areas where decrim nature passes. It percolates into these communities and, uh, and then it just sort of becomes part of the day-to-day -day conversation. And I think that's the most potent thing about decriminalize nature in any city many people say well what's the effect it's still illegal at the federal level when your town leaders your council members your mayor says we are decriminalizing this because of their healing effects it trickles down into the you know the deepest levels of community and then people begin to have a different conversation about these entheogens than they're having about crack cocaine or pcp or heroin 
Yeah, and I think the two things about that too is, um, you know, there's been a, a big educational campaign. That's, you know, I think we're pretty excited and proud of the fact that there's 25-0 or something like that, city council members versus not. So unanimous decision in now three cities and a Washtenaw County, Michigan. So there's a county also that now is decriminalized. So, and that's just been, like you said, like I was just saying, like this sort of educational campaign. We do work, we do have like a science testimonial heart kind of format, you know, where like, you know, first kind of like open the door and like show that there is science that's around this, uh, then maybe kind of show testimonials, show the long history of use and that type of thing. And I think once those things kind of all click in, uh, people can kind of see it. And, and, you know, we had, you know, city council members in Ann Arbor and other places that were a little bit more on the conservative side, they ended up voting for this as well. So, um, so the change is definitely happening. People are seeing it. And I think, you know, even, you know, I think there's this understanding of like, are we going to be on the wrong side of history here? <laughs> you know, like people are like, oh, wait, this is really important. And, and, you know, like you said, this is a crime against humanity. Am I going to be the person that's going to vote no on something mm -hmm. that's going to be looked at as a crime against humanity at some point in time? And so I think there's also that, you know, as more and more of this conversation, as more and more cities pick up, you know, it's really amazing how many cities across the U.S. like really quickly we're like interested, you know, everyone's kind of, especially with Corona, of course, everything gets all kind of all over the place in terms of who's able to sort of pick up and go from here. But, but it's been really, really a reminder of how strong the underground is, how strong people have been doing this for a really long time, how there's people in almost every community that have communities there that, you know, are really well aware of this and that they're open and able to support um, as this kind of moves out. Um, so yeah, it's, it's been, uh, I think the education, um, you know, has been happening pretty quickly and that's happening between you know community members you know or you know people that maybe have been uh, it's been too risky to talk about it but now all of a sudden this is the doors open a little bit and they can talk to their neighbor or their friend about it and that's where the real education is going to happen because they could listen to us all day long but maybe not you know it's going to be from the friends and community family uh, city leaders those types of things mm -hmm. let me drill down on what something larry said it's really important you know in three cities we've gone before 25 council members and initially all of them were either neutral to opposed because they didn't really know anything about them most of them we're now 25 yes zero no's in our council so how did that occur the first thing we do is we lead with science we say hey look at all the history of all the research and, and all the you know great work done at john hopkins and other places and they go oh, okay um now you know through my brain i now um res respect the research and then we say, well, here's some testimonials. And then we have people give heartfelt testimonials about breaking 20 years of addiction. And now they're, you know, they're, they're free and they have children and they have a family. And, and then so it, it goes right, right to the heart. So now we've opened up their mind, opened up their heart. And then we, then we uh, end with speaking about ancient tradition, that this is to, to be fair and just in the world, we have to respect the people that have been doing this and communities have been doing this for forever. So it's not about shoving it into a medical or clinical. It's about opening it up to communities again and learning from ancient traditions. That's a model that now has converted 25 out of 25 people and, and it works in terms of um, educating community, which is something that people get nervous about. Well, you know, you pass this, how are people going to learn how to do it? I'm a, I'm a contractor developer, general contractor developer. And if I want to learn how to install some new piece of insulation, uh, I just Google it and lo and behold, there's a YouTube video on everything now. So if you want to know how to, uh, how to use mushrooms, if you want to know how to use ayahuasca, it's all now on, on the internet. And, mm -hmm. and if you want to learn how to grow, there's a lot of growing institutions and, and establishments popping up everywhere. So kind of right after decrim nature passes in the city, suddenly all these people pop up to teach others how to grow. Mm -hmm. and, uh, it's happening kind of on its own. Like we don't have to try to mastermind this thing. It just sort of happens. Yep.
it's like the spores of change are just slowly uh, proliferating, proliferating throughout the United States. And it's all through uh, small steps, it seems. Was Oakland the first city in the United States to decriminalize? Denver was for mushrooms. Oakland was for all antigens. So the decrim nature, oh. the concept of decriminalizing our relations to nature was in Oakland. Um, Denver was the first one uh, to, to do mushrooms. Mm-hmm. I, I think I remember reading the headline and um, it seems like such a small step to decriminalize, which they're still technically illegal, but to just decriminalize something. And I think it was just more of, correct me if I'm wrong, but it, was, it, it seemed like more of a, a, just like a statement to the world to say like, hey, look, look at what we're doing. Look at these things. They're like, they're not as bad as you think they are. Because it was, you know, it obviously, ideally, you, I mean, ideally, do you guys see it being legal throughout the whole country? That's the goal, right? Uh, our goal is to get it off schedule one uh, within two to three years. And, and we do that by having an open dialogue, sitting with our attorney general's office and saying, look, we're doing healing. Uh, I'm not going to tell you who, and I'm going to tell you where to find it. But here's, here's some research. And, you know, we've held the names back. Here's some research that 80% of the people report having, you know, life-changing experiences for the good. And I mean, these are all the kinds of research, uh, the kind of research we're going to do in community that's part of our current ordinance before the council. So our goal is to, is to do this not through litigation, but through education, and it's working. Mm-hmm. I would say, too, the, that there's a, <clears throat> there's a sort of uh, rush to legalize, and I don't think that people understand that legalize means licenses, regulations, government control. Why do we need to legalize our tomatoes that are growing out of our ground? Why do we need to legalize the orange tree? Why do I need to legalize the grass that's growing? It's, there's no reason. It's, it just grows out of the ground, you know? So I think that's, I would say that we're leaning towards decriminalization and protection of services. That's what the OT model, the Oakland Community Healing Initiative is really protecting community-based practices, but it's not like legalizing where now we have to have uh, a structure and legislation for how to like deal with these things that grow out of the ground. Um, and you know that's what kind of FDA trials, all that other kind of stuff, is doing medicalization, all that kind of thing. But our, I think our approach, at least right now, is just to make sure that they're accessible and that you don't have that sort of, you know, because we see with cannabis and everything else, that's just you know, in, you know, in California now you need a, a license to trim, you need a license to transport, you need a license to grow, you need a license to sell. You know, like there's so many licenses, so many taxes, and that's just so expensive. It's it's ridiculous. So that's legalization. Legalization also creates quote unquote an illicit market. Meaning if you're not legalized, it's still prohibited. Yeah. So that's not any good. If I grow it in my backyard, I'm not in an illicit market. You know, if I trade it with my friends, I'm not in an illicit market. There's a big misconception in all of this. Right now, through decriminalized nature in Oakland and in Ann Arbor, uh, well, actually, uh, Oakland and I believe also Denver and Santa Cruz, I can walk with a bag of, you know, a pound of mushrooms in front of a police officer and say, hey, Mr. Police Officer, Oakland Police Department, look at my one pound of mushroom, uh, psilocybin mushrooms. Aren't they cool? And he will not arrest me because uh, as long as I'm not uh, selling or commercially distributing, uh, I'm not breaking Oakland laws now. Um, It's been decriminalized. It's at the federal and state level that it's still uh, criminal, but even cannabis is still illegal at the federal level, which is something I think people forget because they're like, oh, we have so many laws. It's a power issue. It's not a legal issue with cannabis now at the federal level. They can't enforce because they frankly don't have enough resources to take everybody on. Mm-hmm. And that's what we're trying to get to with decriminalization. Um, and what Larry's talking about is once I um, begin to enter into sales or commercial distribution or co- commercial manufacturing, then I get into a regulatory framework and that's legalization. What we're advocating, and that's fine as if it comes down the road, but we wanna really make sure we protect the fundamental human rights 
to grow your own, gather your own. And, and it's really just simple. Think about it as a tomato. Right now I can grow my own tomatoes. I do grow my own tomatoes. I can share them with friends. I can grow an acre of tomatoes I want as long as I'm not manufacturing or distributing commercially. And that's what we're trying to establish is that fundamental human right. After we establish that nationally and hopefully internationally, if, if the, if the Fed, federal government or people want to advocate for licenses for commercialization, then have at it. But once you, if you do that first, then you create a whole class of people advocating against decriminalization and against abundance. And so that's just what we got to kind of keep in mind. We learned that in cannabis. That's, there was recently a, a church that was shut down that was selling cannabis uh, without a permit here in Oakland and not paying taxes. Um, and, uh, and they were shut down because the adjacent dispensaries said, uh, you're competing with us and we don't like it because we're paying taxes and we're paying permit fees. So, um, yeah. Uh, so where do you, okay, so say somebody's listening to this for the first time, where do, would they start if they want to start a decriminalization movement in their city? What would be the first steps? Oh, should I go on that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I would say first thing, uh, go to our website, decriminalizednature.org. Uh, if you go under the about tab, there is um, a thing called organizer handbook or organizer resources and info. The organizer handbook is great. You can also contact us, email us, you know, because at the end of the day, we want to be able to chat with everybody. We want to be able to help support. It's one thing to read a handbook and another thing to talk to real people, you know, so, so we want to encourage that. But, but in order to at least see like my long, my in alignment with ethos and my, do I understand how my city council works? Do I understand why things are being done this way? This organizer handbook is pretty good. It's about 120 pages or maybe a little bit more. Um, and uh, you can find that there. You can download it. Uh, that gives you all the kind of like, you know, everything from here's the resolution that we used in Oakland. And now that's gone through multiple cities of attorney's offices that has been vetted by multiple cities attorney's offices. So, you know, it's better for them just to almost even just copy paste, change the names and make it happen because then it's not as uh, far reaching for people. If people start putting their own fingerprints on it and changing things up, then the city council will be like, whoa, this is different. What do I have to do now? You know, this, this is not the thing that everyone else is doing. In fact, that happened in Santa Cruz uh, where they changed a couple of things here and there and the city, uh, city council members like, why is this more like Oakland's? Uh, so that's one thing that the resolutions in there, we have like, here, here's an idea agenda for your first meeting. Here's some ethos that we have. Here's some understandings between decriminalization and legalization. Here's understandings between a resolution process, an ordinance process, an initiative process, all of which cost more money initiatives are like you know tens of millions of dollars and you know I think Ann Arbor spent $500 to pass in their city and then Washington County was free it was just a week later uh, mm -hmm. so that also speaks to the educational part of it because how quickly a city can become a county if you do the right education right um, but yeah all that's in that document and then you can kind of go through there we have our email address at the end and then just shoot us an email we usually set up a you know a little zoom call a virtual meeting with uh, with folks in cities when they put a team together and uh, it's been going pretty well I mean uh, like I said during Corona, I think Ann Arbor was one of the few teams that really, really pushed on. Other teams were kind of doing some stuff, but they were really sort of focused, which was great. And then once, as soon as they passed, we got calls from you know, five to 10 new cities that were ready to go. And we'd kind of been, you know, our, our approach during Corona has been kind of like, okay, because everything's going on, we're going to just talk to different. So we had meetings with 35 different cities over the course of the time, just helping them out with like, you know, the basic steps. So that's kind of where we're at now. Still, if somebody new, a uh, new team comes together, they might also already be a team in that city. So sometimes it's easier just to say, hey, there's already people that are doing this work. Here's, you know, here's your name. But we still like to send the organizer handbook so everyone can get the ethos, you know, because I think that's really key to be in alignment with your crew. So you're not, you know, sort of uh, disputing each other in the middle of it, you know, they are all on the same page. Anything to add to that, Carlos? But just that, um, 
you know, there's a very uh, well-known um, um, uh, advocate of, of entheogens who recently passed, Kalindi Iyi, um, out of uh, Detroit. And um, he, he really was a leader on the forefront of researching the history of, of, of um, entheogenic use in, in, in Africa and, and globally. Um, and uh, was just an amazing speaker and advocate. And before he passed, apparently he told uh, another leader in the movement that he believed we had 26 uh, months to, um, to pass, to basically get these as rights for humans before we get overwhelmed by clinical and medical. And, um, and I think that was six months ago. So uh, um, we're um, running out of time. So we do want to encourage people to hurry up and help us organize. Uh, the key in all of this is uh, education, education, education. If we allow money to just dominate, come in and we do a bunch of initiatives, then money controls the game. What we're trying to do here is have people power, go in, educate your elected officials, educate your community, and uh, don't take no for an answer. Get in there and tell the council members and the elected leaders what they absolutely need to know, which is that these things heal our consciousness and enable us to get out of our trauma-based default mode network and live freer lives. And so we, we got a couple of years to really get this done. So we're inviting everybody to engage uh, with us. And our approach is very much um, loose in the sense that we, you know, we have uh, open access to all of our documents. They can take the stuff and work with it as long as, as, long as they sort of are in alignment with ethos and everything. We really encourage local leadership to step up and really sort of make things happen locally because uh, it's not been us doing it. You know, they're learning the process. They're gaining the wisdom. That's what's beautiful about Ann Arbor. You know, already multiple cities in Michigan are reaching out to Ann Arbor as a regional leader. Uh, so then you have this opportunity to really sort of um, speak to the voice of Michigan because they know Michigan better than we do, you know, and, and same thing with Santa Cruz, the same thing with, you know, other places, you know, Denver's probably doing the same thing. It's going to be local to their community. So, so to empower local leadership, I think is a really big aspect of this. So, um, you know, then, you know, we have, you know, multiple people doing this. And if like something happens to DN National, there's still teams all over the place that know what to do and how to make the next steps and that type of thing, which makes a more powerful movement, I think. Mm. Yeah, I think the open source model that you guys seem to, to have is uh, very beneficial for everybody that's involved. Um, so where do you, what's next for your organization? So what cities are, do you think will be next in decriminalizing? Because Ann Arbor just happened, what was it, two weeks, three weeks ago, something like that? Yep, 21st of September. It's a great, great 920 celebration right there. They should forever now have the, the, the flag for 920, you know? So yeah, you about 920, yeah? What's yeah. 920? No, I don't know 920. Oh, 920 is, is it's, a, it's considered like a celebration of Mushrooms Day. So it'd be like oh. the, four, the 420 for mushrooms, basically. I did not know that. That's awesome. Yeah. Was that just a coincidence or was that on purpose? Uh, it was both. <laughs> <laughs> the mutually exclusive, Larry. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, I'm sorry, what was the question again? I kind of, oh yeah, so, so Ann Arbor happens to the next cities where you're speaking about, right? I think, oh, yeah. yeah. We're really, we're having starting to have a really great conversation with Detroit right now. Um, as as uh, Carlos was saying, uh, Clindy was, had a really great community out there. So we're going to be helping out with them. We're going to be helping out with, uh, I think, some folks in Salt Lake City. We have some folks down in uh, Florida who are looking at this. We have Boston, obviously. There's a team out in Boston or Massachusetts that's been doing some work. So they're about to launch pretty soon. Um, we have, I think, Portland and Eugene are really, um, you know, getting things together, especially with uh, uh, the 109 happening up there. So, um, so yes, there's a lot of cities that are active. We have Missoula. We have, you know, it's just 
it's 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 almost kind of hard to know who's going to be next just because you know sometimes it's like you know one group is working really hard uh and they don't have a connection to city council member another group happens to know somebody in city council and it's once that happens it just like accelerates way past everything else so so we're kind of just kind of playing and helping to see who needs support at what time but it's kind of hard to gauge who's going to be next you know like I, I'm, I'm living in, uh you know Berkeley, Oakland, uh, kind of border here, but right on Berkeley and Berkeley still, you know, they were the first person, they were the first um, city to reach out to us to, to um, uh, propose this in Berkeley, even before Oakland had passed, but it got stuck in committee and then Corona happened and people. So, so we thought, I thought, oh yeah, okay, Berkeley, we're going to be coming up soon. And it's kind of taking a little bit longer. So I think we have to be kind of flexible on our timing, but even, you know, one news story here, or one news story there, like, you know, Ann Arbor was getting news in Nebraska, was getting news in, in Missouri, Kansas City, was getting news in Northern uh, Louisiana, places that Oakland would have never really been able to get news into. So um, yeah, it's exciting because we don't really know, but lots of things are happening. What I'd add at the kind of highest level of what's what's next is, um, you know, I don't think it's a coincidence that we have this resurgence in authoritarian governments um, emerging throughout the world. It's a, it's a function of fear and destabilization and uncertainty in our global experience um, as a species. And, um, and with the uncertainty of, of climate change, of economic um, uh, breakdown as wealth gets um, the wealth gap grows with uh, instability of borders all the stuff that's happening uh, people are sh either going to to authoritarian or trying to struggle and figure out what does democracy mean is it even functional fun uh, functional and coming into this from a place of expanding consciousness and awareness it's really interesting that this whole conversation of decriminalizing nature and giving us access to those things that, that help us enhance our, our awareness is happening here in the U.S., um, you know, where the, the, the really the stronghold of capitalism and the, the great army of capitalism going out into the world. And we think the transformation really has a chance to happen here. If we can make it happen here, if we can get a, a stronghold and, and be successful in decriminalizing nature here, then it, we also think that can expand globally. And we're seeing a lot of different movements in different countries contacting us to open up chapters in their countries. We have Ireland, Germany, UK, Chile. Um, we have uh, Colombia, Mexico, Canada, uh, folks in those countries calling us. And so really the next couple of years are gonna be very fascinating to watch if we succeed here in, in getting this movement to, to really catch fire and, and be stabilized despite the pressures from capitalism, um, then we have an opportunity to really help it expand around the world and change the way we relate to, um, to these entheogens. And not only uh, the relate to entheogens, but this is something that was huge for me, relate to government. You know, like, oh, wow, the government works for us. I forgot about that, <laughs> you know, like that's how this system is supposed to work. Like for me, I was totally disillusioned. This whole process has been beautiful to say like, wait a second, local government, they actually do care about the people. If you have citizens and constituents who want to go out and really sort of push for something. And this was even mentioned in Ann Arbor. She says that was really, really important because we're here to work for the people, you know? And so, so to just remember that in this time where everything is kind of getting sort of into this one power dynamic to realize like, wait a second, we have the opportunity to change things, but we have to do it, you know, and that was really powerful, I think, in, in general terms as well. So we're not just talking about plants also, but like, how do we 
take direct action and, and be sort of uh, not just having our experiences, but you know, implementing them through through change. You know, and that's a key reason why we really push the direct resolution with your council as opposed to just hiring, you know, accepting money from a sponsor to do an initiative, because that direct access and watching your government function is so critical. You know, it was in the fifties that James Buchanan, the Economist, really started advocating for political actions that strengthen the political power of those in, in wealth, uh, from wealth and corporate power that finally led to Citizens United. That whole process has been a concerted effort to marginalize us from our own government, to disenfranchise us, to reduce voter turnout, um, and, and really to turn government over to the to corporate and capitalists and, and wealth, uh, because according to James Buchanan, they actually knew better. Um, and, and so, you know, for, for those who want to give up their rights, that's cool, but we don't, uh, right? So that whole process of engaging with your elected official is a key component of the ethos of decriminalized nature, because we are nature and, and we will be criminalized increasingly as human beings if we don't engage with, with our elected officials and if we sort of throw in the towel on our government. Mm. 100% guys, I think um, what you're doing is you know history will look back and say you you we were definitely on the right side of history it's and it's just the beginning right now i think it's it's it really is and it's just going to be a snowball effect as more and more cities decriminalize it's just going to it's just going to be more and more cities decriminalize and i think um you hinted at that already is that it, it is already a snowball effect but it's a slow it's a slow start and um all it takes is is us as individuals like we don't know how much power we actually do have in this government process and um it takes you know highly intelligent or, or not even you don't have to be highly intelligent you know you just have to be a, a, a sane individual <laughs> you know not somebody who is uh you know dreadlocks and tie-dye like i'm wearing or something or just you know just level-headed individuals that approach these people and say hey look uh, these are medicines. These have been with us for thousands of years. Like we need these in with us. And, and like you said, just educating these people because it really okay. comes down to uh, the ignorance. Like, you know, these people are just ignorant of, of the of the truth of the, and the nature of these plant medicines. And I would say just to touch on that real quickly, um, you know, the idea that it's a slow start, it, it kind of is if you're thinking about the whole sort of time frame. but, you know, Decrim Nature started a year and a half ago, three mm. cities in the county drug policy organizations have been doing stuff for 20, 30 years. And so it really speaks to people being ready for this right now. And so I think it's just a matter of people getting together. And that's where, again, this sort of mycelial network, if you want to call it that or whatever else, so many people are ready to pop up and make things happen. And I think that, that like you said, the snowball is actually, uh, I think we'll look back and be like, wow, it only took that long to do this thing, you know? I mean, now we're kind of in the day-to-day -day and Corona happens, so everything is in this weird sort of time fuzziness right now anyway. Yeah. We're in this mutual altered state, right? But, uh, <laughs> but you know, I think, I think you know, I'm, I'm pretty amazed with how quickly this is moving, to be honest with you, even though it seems maybe slow for, for somebody that's in a city that maybe hasn't gotten that far yet. But, um, but three cities in a county in a year and a half, plus Denver, you know, is, is wow, <laughs> you know? Mm. Yeah, when you put it that way, it is it is truly it's like a revolution. It is it's a it's a revolution of consciousness in a way. And from what better place to reinvent? You know, we're all having discussions about the death of capitalism and what's next and how do you transform it. Uh, it's not going to come from the top down. Um, it's going to come from the bottom up. And what better way to enable the bottom that is us, the people, 
to um, help transform what capitalism ultimately will transform into than to have all of us experiencing the, um, the mental uh, openness that comes from, from entheogens and uh, being in, in uh, relationship with, with our plant allies. Mm. 100% guys, 100%. I couldn't agree more. Um, it just comes down to us. Anybody watching this, you know, we, we all have to do our part in, in, in getting these things to the people that need them. And um, I think, honestly, if you guys want to end it at that point, I think that's a beautiful point to end it at. If you have anything else you'd like to say, um, you guys can say it now. Decriminalizednature.org, is that our website, Larry? Yep, decriminalizednature.org or at decriminalizednature on Instagram, Facebook, uh, at decriminalizednature on Twitter. Uh, we're pretty active on Instagram and Facebook, so a good way to sort of get involved in the conversation too, get some good conversations going up there. So, Awesome. Oh, and awesome. nature at Gmail if you want to call, if you want to just pray directly. nature at gmail.com. Cool, cool. Like, uh, uh, I thank you guys so much for coming on. Um, very grateful. And like I said, history will definitely look back and see you guys as, uh, I don't want to be like corny, but as heroes, you know, I guess I'll say, or like on the right side of history. Uh, but, you know, we still got the work to do. So let's uh, let's keep going and, you know, Thank you guys for all your work and thank you guys for coming on here. And uh, yes. Right on. Thank you, Gary. Have a good night. See you. Thank you. Peace.